you are in a battle. Before you are in Christ, you are in a war that you cannot win. In chapter 8, when you have faith and you believe and you come to trust in Christ, when you are in Him, you are still in that battle, but you will not lose. You are listening to the Classes Podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. This semester, we are teaching through the Book of Romans to accompany our Sunday morning series. We hope this class helps you find completeness in Jesus. Well, good evening, everybody. I hope that you guys are uh, doing well, enjoying the fall weather as it truly breaks in. It's a glorious thing. So uh, tonight we're going to be tackling Romans 7 and uh, looking forward to just really just opening up the Word of God together. And uh, man, this is one of those texts that probably all of us have read at one point or another. If you haven't, you will, and you're going to say, that sounds like me. So uh, I hope that we can just begin to explore it well together and put it into a right category as we look at what Paul's saying, even in terms of the argument he's been weaving together throughout this book. But as we do each week, I do want to pray for us and our time together. So let's pray. Father God, uh, so grateful that we can share your, in your word together, that we have it, um, God, at our fingertips it's so accessible for us, God. We recognize that at times um, we, don't, we don't always understand, or Father, sometimes we understand, but we just don't know how to be wise with it. And so, Father, we just pray that both of those things are, are shaped tonight by the presence of your Spirit in our lives, doing things we can never understand and connecting the pieces uh, that we thought were too, too big and lofty to see. And Father, we just pray that that more of the picture becomes clear and God, that our lives become shaped and changed by the fact that your spirit reigns in our life now. And Father, we, we, we pray that, uh, that God, we would just enjoy that, but also extend it to every person. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your spirit. Amen. All right. Well, uh, I was sad to miss out uh, last week, but I did listen to, to Michael. He did a great job, as usual. So thank you for, for uh, talking for an hour by yourself. Hey, you're so, welcome. You know, it takes, it's a little bit harder to do for an hour by yourself. So here we are, though, uh, going to continue to dive into conversation about this book together. And so what we're going to do is take some of the questions that you guys um, have submitted and start to work through those. And again, please keep sending them on. Uh, we love that. That's really, honestly, probably our favorite part, just because it helps us know that you're really thinking through these things. And and trying to understand more of how to integrate these truths or simply to, to understand them. So the first question that we got is, if death is the result of sin and is the separation of us and God, how do we die with Christ, i.e. God? How is it possible? And so I just wanted to tackle that one because obviously this is one that's addressed um, a little bit in chapter six, and I would say even in chapter seven and, and chapter eight, um, is really like, what is what what he means by dying with with uh, because of sin is what we believe about humanity is that they possess two qualities they are both body and soul okay so what that means is I am not just my physical matter that there's something else a part of me that is is meaningful and that will even like be with God when this physical body dies because it will because of sin so at one level he's saying that sin destroys us because it actually, it gives us a verdict of death on our soul. 
but it also destroys us because it gives us a body that is now decaying. It gives us something that is now destined for a grave. And so part of Paul's answer to this human condition is um, ultimately what Christ invites us to. Now, so what he's doing even throughout Romans and trying to help us see is that Christ takes the penalty of death upon himself. Because sin leads to death, he takes that penalty of death upon himself. What that means is when I have faith in Christ, when I believe and trust in all that he has done, what happens is I become unified in him, that my soul becomes connected with who he is now, that the spirit takes up residence in my own life. What that means is my body on the outside is still subject to decay. It's still passing away. And that's kind of what Paul gets to at the very end of chapter seven. Like who's gonna deliver me from this body of death because it's still headed toward a grave. But at the other end, because our souls have been united with God now in this covenant, almost like a marriage covenant, that we're united with him. Because of that fact, um, our bodies may be destined for a grave, but they're also now destined for a resurrection. And the body that we receive when Christ comes and restores all things will far outweigh anything that we've experienced physically in this life. And it will be joined together with our soul, which is still alive because it's in Christ. And it will now be a new sort of union, even between our physical bodies and our souls, that will be a beautiful picture of all that Christ has done through his death and his resurrection, our joining in with that. Did you want to add anything else into that? Well, I think that's pretty good. Um, Pretty good. Come on. No, I think that's good. I think that's good. I think that's rich. I think that's true. I think that's lovely. I think that is beautiful and excellent excellent and praiseworthy. Thank you, Elijah. Uh, Appropriately named. Um, So, yeah, no, I I would just, maybe as a metaphor, you think about... um, Coming back to a plant, you know, what does it mean for a plant to be alive? Well, it means that the plant has the capacity to draw from air and soil that which enables it to do what it does. And if it dies, then it can no longer do that, can no longer draw life. And Paul's doing this double metaphor thing where we're created to be dead to sin but alive to God. But like you're saying, when we sin, we actually lose that life source connection to God. And we've established this life source connection to like sin and death as these active forces in the world. And what Paul is saying, as you've said, when we're united with Christ, who is dead to sin but alive to God, we too are dead to sin but alive to God. So it gets a little, yeah, confusing because Paul's doing a lot of things with the metaphor of death. But I thought what you said was, what's another word I haven't used? Apt. Apt. (laughs) Well, good. Let's move on to our next one then. Great. So we talked about pride. This is the question. We talked about uh, a bit about pride. How do you push yourself out of your comfort zone without beginning to feel pride? For example, speaking in service or leading worship, being greater than like feeling better because God used me or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I know pride is like hard to fight, but at the same time, it's also at some level, it's like hard to win against, but it's easy to fight. All you just have to do is think about what is true. So there's three things I'd say would be valuable to think about in the fight of pride. One is like compare yourself to the right thing. And if you compare yourself to God, then you're never going to be impressive. So that's part of it is just recognizing that it's not, not hard to think God is more worthy of glory and honor than I am because he's, it's, like not, it's like silly even to make the comparison. So think about God would be number one. The second thing would be to recognize that whatever good you do, you do by his power and strength. And that means that once again, even in your efforts to do wonderful things, like good for you for doing them, and it's even okay to be like, hey man, feel proud of yourself for being obedient. Um, 
but the good that was done was done through him. So whoever supplies the power gets the glory. Once again, it's not about you, it's about him. And if you remember that, then it's beneficial to think, to think about it. So like, I don't know, like think you go to Walmart and you could buy a light switch for like three or four bucks probably. They're not very expensive. They're annoying to input in, but they're not expensive. My electrical bill on the other hand is not three or $4 a month because the power is actually more expensive than the light switch because the light switch is nothing more than accessing the power. So you and I are light switches. We're just, we're, we're valuable in love, but we're just not that important. Um, and that drives you hopefully back to the love. So I hope what I'm saying makes sense. Compare yourself to God, recognize that the power that enables your work to be worthwhile comes from God. And then the third thing might just be to like laugh at yourself a little bit that you think being on stage is such a cool thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, at some level, let's say you were like the most famous Christian alive and everyone knew your name and then you had kids and they had grandkids and then your grandkids were like, yeah, but I'm so-and-so's grandson. And everyone in the world is like, oh, okay, like so? <laughs> it's just, who cares? We really are small. And it's not something that is, you know, necessarily should make you feel sad. We are, we are impressively tiny and shockingly loved. And so if you just think about what is true, God is more deserving of honor than you because he's a lot bigger than you. In this particular thing that you're proud of, ultimately the glory goes to God because he's the one who supplies the power for it to actually do anything. And thirdly, you just aren't as big or as cool as you think you are. So you're welcome to stop thinking about yourself and just have fun serving the Lord. You know what I'm saying? Um, so hopefully those things are helpful. Um, pride is a serious problem, but it is... Let me say one more thing. I think the Lord might be doing you a really good service by not letting you be entirely free of your pride. How many of you in here would say you wrestle with pride? Um, okay, so generally speaking, how many people do you think have lived that like literally struggled against pride and then totally overcame it? Like to a point where they never had another proud thought ever, ever again, zero. So if you, raise your hand again if you struggle with pride. So if you were the first one to actually overcome pride, your victory would be very, very short because very quickly you would realize that you were the only one who overcame pride and you would immediately be the most prideful person in the room. So at some level, it's God's grace that allows us to keep struggling against these things. Yeah, and I would, I would only add to that, you know. Um, you don't have any nice words for, I'm just kidding, off, I don't want nice words for Michael, it. you said those words really well. Um, but... You know, C.S. Lewis, I always go back to his definition of humility, which is not that you think less of yourself, uh, but that you just think of yourself less. So if you think about what pride is, pride is that I think I'm better than other people. If you think of what insecurity is, it's that I think other people are better than me. And what humility does is it says, stop thinking about yourself so much. And the reality is that comes through sanctification. Like that comes through thinking on the truth of who God is. He is, allows that balance to come in where you can think of yourself in, from the fact that like, you're, you're low and like, you're small, but at the same time, you are loved and you are known. And like, God holds those tensions very, very well for us. And the more that we think on that, the more that we sit with that, the more that humility is brought about in us and through us. Um, and I do think, obviously, in terms of like, should we be on a stage if we're struggling with pride? And sometimes it just depends on your context. Like sometimes you have to really think through that well. Paul says, I think it's Philippians too, that like, you know, people are like worried that, that the gospel is being preached with 
for people from, for selfish ambition. And he's like, well, they're preaching the gospel still. So I guess just let them like they're ultimately they're leading to their own condemnation, but they're actually letting other people hear the message of freedom. So, you know, there is a balance. There's a context to it all. Uh, but the reality is so long as you keep pursuing a relationship with Christ, he's going to bring about this ability to self forget. In fact, Tim Keller has a book called the, the freedom of self forgetfulness, which is a small little pamphlet. So like basically a sermon, I think he probably preached and then they made it into a little book, uh, but it's very short um, and it's on Amazon. So you could, you could check that out. It's not, we don't have it. So, uh, but it is on Amazon. I just, I feel compelled to say one more thing. It, and it's fine to be proud of yourself for being faithful to God. But if you're more proud of standing up in front of other people and doing something than you are like serving people when no one's watching. Like if I'm more proud of myself for you know, teaching a good lesson than I am for being patient with my children or serving my wife, then I've got my priorities out of whack. So we as individuals and as families in a church culture need to be sure to celebrate the right thing. It's fine to even to be proud of coming up here or going wherever and, 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 and serving the community in these public ways. But what you should be proud of is not the platform. What you should be proud of is that you faithfully obeyed what the Lord called you to do. That's what we should be excited about in our lives, not other people looking at us or doing something that X amount of people think is cool or whatever it is. Also, yes, to that book. It's so good. Literally, like, well, this is probably kind of a weird way of saying it. I'll just say it doesn't take very long to read and not give you an analogy. Go ahead. <laughs> Next question is, when you confess your sins to God and believe in your heart, God forgives you. Yeah. Will you have to confess again when God judges us and exposes all we have done? Um, I would say no. Um, I think at the end of the day, when judgment happens, um, part of what God exposes is not your sin. It's that you are you belong to him. Mm. Like part of what he sees um, you is he really sees like Christ's righteousness. He doesn't see your mistakes. He sees Christ's perfection. That's the beauty of what Paul's even been talking about through the book of Romans. Um, and so there is freedom in confession, not because it earns us something with God, but because it actually transforms us and changes us through our ability to be vulnerable and transparent and, and humble. Like that, and, and confession is an act of humility because it ultimately says, if, even if I tell you these things and it changes your view of me, I know who I am in Christ. I know that I'm, I'm his. And so you're able to, to allow darkness to be exposed by light, recognizing there might be pain involved to a level that's hard, but you're, we're willing to do that because you recognize what God can do through it. And so um, I think at the final, the final judgment, um, God doesn't say, okay, now go ahead and confess the things that you, you know, that, that you didn't tell me yet. I think he says, welcome home. Hmm. So that's good. Um, next question in the NIV Romans five says through one man that death came to all people. How does that work with first Timothy two fourteen, where it says, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Yeah, I think, um, they, they kind of represent two not competitive or contradictory, but two different ways of drawing out truth from the story in Genesis. So in a sense, Adam and Eve sinned together. 
and they together as the first um, human couple bear the responsibility of what they've done. And yet, and there's unique ways in which each participated in that sin. And those ways are worth thinking about. Um, actually, I think all of us could in various ways find ourselves in Adam's role and also in Eve's role. And there also are ways in which I think certain sins that are specific genders are prone to or maybe even mapped out on here a little bit. And I think about this primarily in terms of men because I think it's probably more valuable for me to think about my sin than other people's. You know, Adam's first sin in, in practice was that he didn't say anything. He was silent. He just sort of passively stood by and watched as this um, woman whom God had given him to love um, was, was eating this fruit. And then he joined in with her and did it as well. So, but the reason why Paul leans into Adam here in, in Romans 5 is that Paul is, I mean, Adam is sort of like the symbolic head of the human race as a whole. His, um, he was the one that God created first and God gave him the commission to cultivate the garden. And then it was his inability to complete this task that led to the creation of the woman who is the perfecter of the created beauty and who is the one um, alongside him whom comes and brings life. And so there's really a beautiful picture of the cooperation between men and women that's there in Genesis. But there's also um, different ways of talking about the destructive nature of what happens when things go wrong. So really the answer to the question is, Paul's drawing out different aspects of the story in order to communicate different things that are true. And in Romans 5, his emphasis is on Adam's like symbolic headship over all of humanity, corresponding to Christ's symbolic headship over all of humanity. And that's why he draws the emphasis that he does. Yeah. Uh, next question is, was there sin before Adam? And the short answer is yes. Uh, you know, sin really is, as a concept, it is kind of the antithesis of God, right? So as soon as God creates someone whether that is an angelic being or a human with agency, which what I mean by that is they, they can make decisions. They can choose things. Um, that, that allows that person to not choose God. And that's really what sin is. Sin is, in many ways, it's, it's moving away from all things that are good and true into deciding what you want as opposed, and seeing that as what is most good and true. Um, and again, that is not a precise theological definition of sin, but that's kind of hopefully brings some clarity in terms of like sin was before Adam, but it wasn't, it hadn't been introduced into the physical world um, in that, in the same way, if that makes sense. I'm surprised so. by your answer. So are you saying like, yes, because like something to do with the, an angelic rebellion against God? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, and maybe so I should... So not human sin was present before Adam because there Correct. was no human before Adam. But right. rebellion against God. Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah. All right. Because one of the things like Revelation talks about, you know, is that this angelic host had, you know, basically turned away from from God. Um, and then ultimately that's, you know, Satan was the, 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 the snake that ult ultimately deceives Adam and Eve. And so, um, and even in that sense, before Adam, like technically Eve had to, to ate first. So I guess you could say in that sense, there was sin before Adam, but in terms no, of the I human think he sinned experience. First. He but, didn't step in. <laughs> but, um, but like, yeah, there, those, those ideas um, always existed, but then there was an actual actualization of those things that made it come into the world. Like that opened the door for its possibility, if that makes sense. Do you want to add any more to that? Okay. Um, and then you mentioned house churches last class. What was that? Yeah. Um, so, there, you know, churches, 
When they first started gathering together, they would meet in public places and also in homes. And for the majority of the first couple, um, first decades for sure, many of their meetings would have taken place in larger homes. So like in chapter 16, if you read through chapter 16 of Romans, you'll notice that Paul is greeting a number of different people and he'll say, you know, so-and-so, Nympha, or whomever that may be in Colossians, but, you know, um, Aquila and Priscilla and the church that meets in their home. And so here you have these people who are hosts for house churches. It wasn't until the 300s, uh, which was, and it was in Philipp, the city of Philippi, where Philippians was written to, where there was a building that was specifically constructed in order to be a church. Now, in between, you know, 50s and 300, the church would sometimes utilize and even rent or purchase public property in order to have meetings. Even in the book of Acts, you see them meeting in public spaces and private spaces. But when I say house churches, I mean that it's quite likely that they're like Sunday resurrection celebration worship services would have taken place in people's homes. And that's what I meant by house churches. So I'm curious if there was more to that question. So you can ask us more later or you can find me or whatever, but that's all I meant. All right. Well, um, Michael, why don't you recap uh, chapter six and then we'll start to work our way into chapter seven. Great. Yeah. So um, it was fun to talk with you guys last week. And I said I was going to be preaching the next two weekends. I'm not very good at reading the calendar. I was preaching this last weekend and then not this next weekend. So Mark's going to preach on Romans six tomorrow and then Sunday. Um, But Romans 5 is really about how, the second half of Romans 5, about how we are freed from death and the ways in which it has power in our lives. We're afraid of our vulnerability, and so we don't trust God and we don't love people. But Jesus has overcome that problem with his life that emerges from his death. So anyway, we're freed from the grip of death in the end of chapter 5. And then really chapter 6 is all about how we're freed from the grip of sin that sin actually has dominion over us in our natural state. Jesus says in uh, John chapter 8, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Paul says in Titus 3, at one time we were all this foolish, deceived, disobedient, and enslaved. So our natural condition is one in which we are not able to avoid sinning. It's just we don't have the power to resist temptation, and most of the time we don't even want to resist the temptation. And so that's really the natural condition of humanity, and Paul is saying that we're actually freed from that. And he leads into it with this question, oh, since grace is so great, should we go on sinning? And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, like you've literally been removed from this sphere of the sin of dominion. You're now in Christ. And so everything is different for you. And um, very simply, he's saying, you know, because of your baptism, sin no more. You don't have to sin anymore. You don't have to fall into temptation. That does not mean that you'll be perfect. It doesn't mean that you'll never be tempted. It doesn't mean that you're automatically aware of all of the places where sin is present in your heart and they're now gone. It just means that anytime you find yourself in a situation where you are tempted to do what God does not want you to do, you always, in Christ, you always have the capacity to be free. I think sometimes we hear the call to sin no more as a burden. It's not a burden, it's a liberation. I'm reminded of a friend of mine who struggled for a long time with um, his eating habits. And one night he got up in the middle of the night and he'd kind of been in bouts of trying to control this and different techniques and fasting and dieting and different things. And and he got up in the middle of the night, wasn't hungry, but he just made himself a sandwich because that's just what he did. And he said he sat down about 2 a.m. at the kitchen table at the sandwich right in front of him that he knew he didn't need. And he said he heard the Holy Spirit in his mind say, you know, you don't have to eat that. And something clicked for him in that moment. It wasn't, don't eat that. It was, you know, you don't have to do this. 
And that's, I think, the spirit of God whose voice comes through Romans 6 and says, you know you don't have to look at that. You know you don't have to say that. You know you don't have to treat that person that way. You know you don't have to hold on to that. You can let it go. And Romans 6 really is a call to enjoy the freedom that God has given us from sin. But let me read you one small piece of it and draw your attention just to two words. I think a key paragraph that captures the call of this text is chapter 6, verses 11 uh, through 14. So I want to have you underline a couple of words if you're an underliner. In, the, in my version, it says, in the same way, count yourselves. Underline that word if you would, count yourselves. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God. Underline those words, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. I'm gonna give you a couple of C words. One is sort of a classic word. One is a math word. So that word count, I want you to write the word calculate somewhere in your notes. And then that word offer yourselves. There's an old English word that we don't use very often. It's the word consecrate. Calculate, that's what Paul's saying. The term he uses for count yourselves dead to sin is a mathematics term. He says, do the math. Jesus died to sin plus you died in him equals you are free from sin. I firmly believe that one of the reasons we sin more than we have to is because we believe that we have to. We think that it's inevitable. We find ourselves in certain situations where we actually don't think we have the capacity to resist it, so we might as well give in. And I'm telling you right now, that is never true. Never true for you. And the battle begins right here. You do the math in your head. This is not good for me, and I don't have to jump into it. You calculate. And then the second piece of it is you consecrate. It's an old term, and I don't want to steal what Mark is going to say on Sunday. I haven't seen the sermon yet, but it's probably related to these things. It's a word from like um, priestly things where you would, you would take like a, a particular animal, a sacrifice, or you would take like a particular towel or particular clothing, and you were setting it apart for specific use for God. You would consecrate it as a holy thing. And he's saying, consecrate the parts of your body, your hands, your feet, your mouth, um, other parts. And it's, it's a way of saying, um, take this hand and instead of using it to steal, use it to bless. Take this mouth and instead of using it to, to condemn other people, use it to build people up. Take these feet and instead of allowing them to take you to places where you got no business being, let them take you to the presence of God and from the presence of God to the people. So it's essentially a way of going through the various parts of your body and retraining them. That's the other reason we sin is because sin is kind of still stuck in the various habits that we formed which feel located in the parts of our bodies. So um, that's what he's saying in chapter six is you are totally free, uh, I don't know about totally, but you are free from sin in that sense. So that's a summary of uh, chapter six. You got anything you want to add to that before I kind of give a very brief, what is going on with that? I would just, I would just add one thing, um, which is for those of you who feel like you're stuck in sin, um, that they're like God, God is not going to leave you that way. That is what scripture promises is that God is changing us maybe slowly, but surely. And I love like Matt Chandler calls it the dance of sanctification, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. He is changing us. And what I would emphasize is that so many of us want our lives to, to be like just these things to be taken from us. 
but the truth is, um, we also have to really actually deliberate what are we going to replace it with? Like being intentional about the fact that our, if our mouths are the things that are causing us to gossip, like how are we intentionally thinking, I'm going to build up instead. Like so many of us will just think, God, help me to stop gossiping. Well, it's like, well, maybe we should also ask, like, God, help me to bless and, and praise and encourage and love and serve. Um, so actually figuring out ways in which we're replacing the things that, um, that hurt ourselves and others with things that will bless us and others and ultimately be um, glorifying to God as well. So let's jump into seven. Great. So yeah, what we want to do with seven is I want to give you kind of a bird's eye view. And so I want to walk through the flow of thought. Uh, throughout chapter seven, and then we're going to kind of circle back around, and then we'll just go through it section by section and read it together and look at what is said and try to clarify things as we go. And then, as always, hopefully we'll have some time for questions uh, toward the end. So um, if you look at chapter seven, you may notice that generally speaking, it's usually broken down into like a few different sections. So chapter seven, verse one through six is in most Bibles, like its own little section. And then you've got the rest of the chapter, seven through 25. And uh, really, I think um, I would say that seven through 12 is a distinct statement. And then 13 through the rest, that's how you have it broken down on there, right? So let me walk you through the logic. Paul has just said, so stay with me, chapter five, we are free from what? Chapter five, yes, we are free from death. And then chapter six, we are free from sin. And then in chapter seven, he starts out by saying, we are also free from the law. And he breaks that down in some ways that we'll look at. But that kind of raises a funny question. Like if we're free from death and we're free from sin and we're free from the law, then like, is the law sinful? And he answers that question with a resounding, no, 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 no. The law is not sinful. The law is a good thing. But we are so sinful that we took this good thing called the law and turned it into an instrument of death. And then it's like, okay, okay, so the law is not sinful. But are you saying that the law leads to death? Which is the last paragraph. And Paul again says, no, 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 no. The law does not lead to death. Once again, I am the problem, not the law. But because I'm such a problem, I will take this good thing, the law, and I will turn it into an instrument that brings about bad things. So picture 12-year-old boys at the pool. So they're out doing all kinds of crazy things. And you put, you know what you guys need? You guys need a list of rules. So you put a list of rules on the side. And this makes things worse. Because now you've given them more ideas about things that they can do wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes the long list of laws gives me ideas about ways I might have some fun. Also, now that you've got a list of rules, you've got one kid who's the goody two-shoes and who's going to follow the law and use the fact that he's following the law to point his finger at all the other little boys who are not following the law. So now he's no longer diving off the side in the shallow end, but he's being a judgmental jerk. You know what I'm saying? So we're the problem, which leads to this despairing question, who will rescue me from this body of death? And that takes us to the last line of the statement. So again, we're free from the law, but that doesn't mean the law is like sinful. No, 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 I'm sinful, and so I turn the law into a death-dealing thing. But that doesn't mean that the law brings death. Again, I am the problem, and then the solution. So that's an overview. Let's read it. Let me read the first bit, Elijah, and then why don't you share any thoughts you have um, that will clarify this first paragraph. So chapter sin, uh, what? Nope, that was not what I meant to say. <laughs> chapter seven, um, I is Eve, that's funny. Chapter seven, one through six. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, 
that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So, I mean, this is a question that we've gotten before, which is like, what does Paul mean when he says law, right? Um, And I would say most commentators uh, would say this is specifically talking about like the Torah, right? Like the things, the, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, all of those things that are bound up within those first five books of the Bible that would ultimately um, kind of define the Jewish experience and expectations of what they were called to do and be. And so part of even what um, Paul, I think, is trying to address in many ways is, is not just um, the fact that we've died to sin and death, but now for a Jewish person, like, what do we do with the law? And so part of what he's saying is you have died to the law. That's kind of what he's doing. And he's, he's starting to break these categories out into two specific camps. He's starting to talk about the, the Torah and the law and grace. He's starting to talk about the flesh and the spirit. And you're going to start to see the definitions of these kind of um, continue to be identified and articulated, clarified as we go throughout. But he's trying to help you see even the difference of the covenants, right? Because the first, the, the covenant, which is really has to do with the Torah, the law, um, that was all about this idea of being right with God was in alignment with what you were doing in regard to the covenant that you made, the promises that you made. Now we're talking about a new covenant that Christ has made. And that's why I think Paul's illustration of marriage is so helpful because that's probably the closest we get to um, our understanding of a covenant in our day and age. Like we don't make covenants like they did in the past, but that's probably as close as we get where promises are made, right? And expectations are understood and the conditions are understood. And then ultimately our relationship is sealed. Uh, we have this, this understanding that like we're not going anywhere, right? Until death separates us, until death do us part, that type of thing. So what he's saying is, we, because what we actually talked about in the first question that was asked in terms of like this death and how we are, you know, how we've died with Christ and what all does that mean? Well, if Christ died and he died for our sins and we are in Christ, so it's if we died, you know, with him in that sense, and that's kind of what Paul's elaborated in both five and six, right? That we were even buried with him in baptism, we, we died. Well, if that's true, then that old covenant We're no longer tied to that, the expectations of what that all was calling us to. Now, because we're in this new covenant with Christ, there is grace. And the best part about it, Paul kind of ends this last, you know, verse six with this, is he he says essentially that the very things that the law was calling us to do, bearing these fruit of goodness and righteousness, the very things that we were unable to do, actually 
the Spirit does through us and in us. It bears the fruit of righteousness. And so where the old law and the covenant was calling us to do something that we failed to uphold and do, and therefore leading to death, this new covenant, um, because of our new co- relationship with God, is now he's now bearing fruit through the Holy Spirit in all the ways that we wanted to do, but we couldn't. Um, so that, that that's what I would say are some of the major parts. We're not under the law because we had died to the law through Christ, and now we bear fruit through the Spirit. Do you want to add anything more to no, that? No, yeah, no, I don't think so. I think, yeah, just hitting that, that key point there, that in the same way that once you, if one spouse dies, then the living spouse is free from responsibility to not marry another person. Uh, that is no law. Law no longer applies to them. In that same way, this law no longer applies to us. So, yeah, that's where Paul's taken us so far free from death, free from sin, now also free from the law. Why? Because Christ died to it, and we are in him dead to it as well. And that takes us to this next section where he will ask this question. I keep saying he's asking. Look at verse 7. So let me walk, let me, why don't, Elijah, why don't I walk through these next few verses, say a few things as I walk, kind of give an annotated reading, and then you jump in. Um, okay, so he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? That's the question, right? Like you get his flow of thought. If we die to it, does that mean it's a bad thing? And look at what he says. Well, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not known, have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So think about that. Like, um, that's the you know, major commandment right there in the 10. And I don't know if you really ever experienced this, but it's like, you know, don't covet your neighbor's, let's list it out, house, spouse, truck, body, bank account. I don't know. Let's keep going. What are some other things that like we shouldn't covet? Their vacations indeed. Yes, ma'am. What else? Their hair. I'm jealous of Mark's hair. No, I'm not. I'm really not. Their kids. They're well-mannered kids. What else? education. Yeah, so it's like the more you make a list of things not to covet, the more you start to notice what other people have that you don't. That's Paul's point. So he's saying like, no, the law's not bad, but I don't even, I would have really known what sin was hadn't been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, sin's almost this like, it's, it's like figured as this um, personified creature. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. I actually think that Paul's doing a number of things at once right now. I think he's retelling the story of Israel, receiving the law. So we were saved from bondage and we were made alive and then we got the law and then, oh my gosh, things got really bad from there. I also think he may even be alluding to the story of Adam. Adam and Eve were good. And then the serpent is like, ooh, but what about that tree? And they're like, ooh, what about that tree? You know what I'm saying? So that's, I think, some of what's going on in here. I found that the very commandment that had intended to bring life actually brought death for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded me by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So I'll pause there. Once again, Paul's saying, we're freed from the law, but don't think that means the law is bad. No, 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 no. It's just twistable. And I'm really good at twisting it. 
It tells me what not to do, but when it tells me what not to do, sin is so powerful that sin twists that into something that I want to do. And so the law that was supposed to bring life actually brings death. The law, though, is innocent, righteous, good. Nothing wrong with the law. Anything you'd add to that? I would, I would only add simply that, um, that so much of um, what you're even seeing here of sin in general is this fundamental thing. What if God is wrong? Like, what if that thing really will bring me pleasure? What if that thing really will bring me joy? What really will bring me life? What if I can be happy with that thing? And I think the most dangerous part about it is that God in some, in some ways has kind of disclosed, actually, yeah, you could be happy, but you will die. You, you could have that thing and it might bring excitement or pleasure or whatever else, but it will ultimately lead to death. You know, like even in the garden, that's the question that they're struggling with. Well, what if God was wrong about this tree? And that is the question that literally we are all wrestling with, with every sin thing that we're dealing with. Well, maybe, maybe he wasn't quite right there. And maybe I could just experience it to understand it for myself. And the, the, the scariest part is that, you know, Romans 1 kind of shows us this, that sometimes God will say, okay, like, yeah. And sometimes it actually will bring that sense of, excitement or pleasure that you're looking for, it will also bring about death. Um, and so I think in some ways, that's really what, what Paul's trying to show is what, the, what sin does when it leaps into existence is it really does, um, it becomes alive through the things that we question, the, the things that, that God has said. So, Great. Um, are you, I want to hear you read the Bible. Why don't you read the next part and uh, do what you want with it and then I'll come alongside in whatever way makes sense. Um, into 13, right? Yep. Okay. Um, well, actually, I'll say, well, okay, I might come back to that. Verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Lots of doo-doos, okay. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin." There's a lot going on in this passage. 
and it is a little bit hard to track with sometimes because of how much he's going on. But this is one of those passages that we all read and say, how does Paul know what I'm thinking? <laughs> because um, we, it, we share in this experience. And so the question that has plagued so many people throughout like the history of, since this was written, I'm sure, you know. Um, well, since Augustine. Yeah. Their <laughs> um, jokes are so great, aren't uh, they? Yes. Sorry, carry on. Um, is who's Paul talking about here? So is, is Paul talking about a, a like really mature Christian? Like, is this the experience of a mature Christian? Is this the experience of, of somebody who's new to Christ, maybe? And so they're still, still dealing with these demons, you know, in the background? Or is this talking about Paul before he even became a Christian? Who's he talking about here? And so this is kind of a debated text, although um, I will say, you know, we were talking about this in, um, beforehand, that like, I would say it seems like more people are coming to an agreement that this seems to be Paul's talking about somebody before they become a Christian. Um, and here's the deal. What that makes us nervous about is we're all like, I feel that way today, you know? And here's what I want to maybe emphasize as we look and explore this, this passage, because there's so much we can say about it, but I just want to go ahead and say this, that just because Paul is talking about himself before he became a Christian doesn't mean he's not also talking about the human experience within being under the Lordship of Christ. We're talking about what, what, Paul, what we think Paul is saying in regards to his argumentation thus far, and we're going to explain that. But I don't want you to think because he's not talking about, you know, himself as, a, as an apostle, um, that, that, that it means that we're not allowed to feel these things at times, okay? So let's start unpacking it a little bit. Do you want to you start? Sure. So again, let's, let's make sure we're tracing the logic and just, um, I know the loop has been closed because he read the last verse. So again, free from sin, free from death, free from sin. You guys are going to be so tired of me reviewing free from death, free from sin, free from the law. But that doesn't mean the law is bad. It's just that I'm bad and I use the law for bad purposes. So wait, is the law leading to death? No, again, it's not the law. It's me. I'm bad. I'm terrible. I want to do good, but I don't do good. Who's going to save me? Oh, Jesus, wonderful. And that's how this ends with this wonderful sign of victory. So, yeah, I don't know if you, um, Elijah's wanting to be careful not to lay a burden on you or not to discourage you, but what we're saying is we may be wrong, but we both happen to agree on this one. Um, Paul's not talking about you. If you're a person in Christ, he's not talking about you. And um, like he said, that can be discouraging because it's like, whoa, 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 but it feels like he's talking about me. It might feel like he's talking about you, but he's not talking about you. He said in chapter six, in no uncertain terms, we are free from sin. I remember how I read it like 11 times we saw it. He's saying in chapter eight, same thing. We've been set free from sin. So it doesn't make any sense to say, I'm free from sin. I'm set free from sin. I'm totally enslaved to sin. That doesn't follow. So again, like this is Elijah's pastoral point, don't be too discouraged because Paul fully recognizes that we're going to see ourselves in this. And he fully recognizes that we're going to feel enslaved to sin. But part of the reason why he lays it out the way he does is so that we're going to say, well, that feels like me. And then we're going to look again and realize, but he's saying that's not me. Because he wants you to know that you will feel like you can't defeat sin, but that is in fact a lie. You are free from sin. 
So maybe you're like, but he's saying I. How does that work? Um, it's, a, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a literary device. It's a way in which sometimes people will talk. So I actually, my favorite example for this is thinking about coaching. So pick your sport. We'll go with baseball because it's the easiest. Ooh, I wonder if this could be a baseball bat. This is going to be a baseball bat. Okay, so I, let's say I'm the coach and you guys are the team. Or let's, well, let's say I'm the coach and it's my son's team because that's real. And they're, they're like, they, they know how to stand, right? They know what their stance should be. But the, as the ball comes, they're pulling their shoulder they're, pull, they're looking with their head, so they're pulling their shoulder. They're opening up too quickly, and you guys know baseball? Some of you guys play baseball, yes? And they're swinging over the top of every pitch. And I've told them over and over, like, keep your shoulder down. Keep your eye on the ball. And I'm so tired of saying, keep your eye on the ball. I see you videoing this. Keep your shoulder down. Keep your feet planted. Don't step back. Everything follows your eyes. And I'm so I'm fed up. So I'm like, listen, boys, all right, give me the bat. So I take the bat. It's like, all right, guys, look. I'm in the box. My feet are set, shoulder width apart, toes, toes pointed in the right direction. My knocking knuckles are lined up. Thank you, Coach Cole. I'm ready to roll. My eyes are on the ball. The ball's coming. I lean back. I start to step. I pull my eyes and my shoulder. My whole body opens up, and I swing right over on top of the ball every single time. I'm saying I, right? But I'm not talking about me. You're doing the same thing. What are you guys going to do with this video? <laughs> Believable. Don't teach college students. They think it's hilarious to take videos of you when they're not supposed to be. Um, now I lost my train of thought. Oh, the, but the point is, I'm using the first person pronoun all the way through, but I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about my team. But I'm using the first person pronoun because I'm trying to relate to them in such a way that they can see themselves in my experience. So what Paul is doing, and he's talking specifically to Israelites under the law, although recognizing that all humans are going to be able to say, well, I feel that. He's talking specifically to Israelites under the law, and he's saying, yeah, so God saved you. You were alive. But then he gave you the law, and it was a good gift, but you're so twisted and jacked up that it became a negative thing. So you became more sinful. You became more corrupt. And you were trying to follow it, but you couldn't. So, like, it's great that you have the law, but having the law isn't going to get you where you want to go. In order to get where you want to go, you need grace. In order to get you where you want to go, you need a new covenant. In order to get you where you want to go, you need to be in Christ who provides the victory that you cannot win on your own. So I think what Paul is doing here is doubling down and saying, I know it's going to be hard, but slavery to sin as an inescapable reality is a previous chapter in your story. You might be in a chapter called struggling with sin, but struggling with sin, struggling against sin, fighting sin is different than slavery to sin. And that's no longer you. So that's my understanding of, of what's going on here in this particular text. What would you change, add, adjust? I think You should that, use this. That would be a better... better uh, well, this well, is heavier, and I thought yeah, if I swing true. this and, like, slips out of my hand, then sorry, guys. I don't know which one of the two of you is just going down because this thing is heavy. Um, I think that's, that really is a great way to sum it up um, in many ways. You might be... You might feel like you are struggling with sin, but you are not enslaved to it. And again, going back to why is this Paul, why is this Paul before he became a Christian? It's because he's using terms in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. We are not slaves of sin anymore. That's exactly what he just unpacked in chapter six. That's not who we are. And then he talks about the fact uh, that for I do not uh, let's see, verse 19, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. What's he talking about? He's talking about being, like sin being a, a master in him. In verse 17, as it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. 
There's a master in him that is sin. And that's what he's talking about. Like it's when you become a Christian, when the Holy Spirit comes in, that ain't true anymore. You might struggle with sin, but you are not enslaved to it. And that is why to me, this is all climaxing to chapter eight, which we're going to get to uh, next week, which by the way, I don't know if you remember, but we all said that's the best chapter in the whole Bible if you had to pick one. So that one's going to be fun. Uh, but that's, he's, he's climaxing to this moment where he's going to help you see th- this exact struggle. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? This body that is subject to death, it's going to be Christ. He is going to do it. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. That's what Romans 8 pronounces on your life. You are no longer a slave to sin. You you never have to be. And that is why I love the way Tim Keller, uh, he categorizes chapter seven and chapter eight. He says, in chapter seven, you are in a battle. Before you are in Christ, you are in a war that you cannot win. In chapter eight, when you have faith and you believe and you come to trust in Christ, when you are in him, you are still in that battle, but you will not lose. Now, it might be that dance of sanctification that's two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, but you are progressing. You will progress because you're not a slave to sin. You are a slave to righteousness and you're becoming something. Your end is in sight. Look at Jesus and you'll start to see what it is you're becoming. This is part and part why Colossians says, fix your eyes on, on him as he sits on his throne. This is why Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Because the more we look at him, the more we see him, the more we realize who we're becoming. It's pretty easy for him to perfect our lives when we see the image of who we're called to become. And this is really what Paul's trying to help us see, is he's calling us to recognize that, there, that sin once enslaved you, and now you are going to struggle with it. You're in a battle. That's fair. And this might feel like you because it is this war and that you're still in. The difference is you couldn't win before Christ and you will win because of him. That is the difference. Um, Do you want to add any more? Yes. Amen. (laughs) Amen. Man, never don't need to hear that. The gospel is so much bigger. I can't wait till heaven. Heaven's going to be amazing. I never want to denigrate the beauty of the fact that we get to spend eternity staring in Jesus' face and serving together and climbing mountains and building stuff and, I don't know, playing baseball. But um, I also never want to underestimate how much power Jesus makes available to us here and now. It's part of the gospel. And we'll talk more about that power next week because Romans 8, man, that's when the Spirit comes in and it starts changing things. I will say one more thing. What time are we supposed to be done? Um, it's subjective, but... 740-ish, 745. Um, So I'll say say one more thing and then questions. I want to take questions. Um, Because that first question, again, this idea of death, how does that work? Again, this is kind of what Paul's talking, alluding to here. He's subject to death, right? Both his physical body and his soul are subject to being separated from the source of life who is God. And so the question is, um, who's going to save me from this? In Romans 8... That's when we're going to turn the corner and he's going to say, Christ has done this through the spirit. And he's going to say, even in Romans 8, actually our bodies are still subject to death, but not our souls. They are alive and well because the spirit is living in there. It's made a home out of us. Again, we're going to talk about that more next week, but um, that might just be helpful to continue to categorize those terms as you start to understand this dual nature to reality, which is one that we have physical matter all around us, but two is that we are not just physical. We are spiritual. We have something else inside of us uh, that is, a, is fundamentally who we are. 
So uh, questions about this section as a whole? Comments? So, you know, he's pointing out in there that there's this duality, this divided self. A law, in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, but in my flesh, I'm a slave to sin. And that seems like it maps pretty well onto the Christian life. And there are other, other aspects of this that map pretty well onto the Christian life. And I think that, um, that again, Paul, I don't think Paul is unaware that what he's saying is going to resonate but I do think that he gives us context clues that even if it may resonate with us, we need to see it as not really describing us. And it wasn't actually until Paul wrote in 57, it wasn't until, and this was the Augustine joke, Augustine, who's wonderful, he was a theologian who wrote at the late 300s and early 400s, he was the first one to really flip this and interpret this as a description of his own Christian life. And even he didn't read it that early in his life, but he changed his mind later in life. And because he's such a wonderful teacher, that actually is what set the trajectory for a number of centuries, how, where that was the normal reading of this passage. So what, we, um, what we're doing is we're saying, I don't think that. So let me answer your, actual, actual, answer your actual question. I think about Psalm 119 and a lot of the Psalms where, where David is expressing this deep love for the Word of God and this deep passion for the commands of God. And, uh, you know, oh, I love your law so much. But we also know that David was unable to follow the law. You know what I'm saying? And so it's describing a divided self, a person who I want to follow God's ways, but I just can't. And I don't think that's you. I think you and I want to follow God's law and can, but sometimes don't. And that's the distinction that I would make. And it's important for us, I think, if I'm, if I'm reading this right. And there are plenty of well-meaning, Bible-believing, super, you know, theologian, scholar people who, who would disagree with us, even if this is currently the majority reading, but that would be the idea, is that it's important to have a distinction between can't and don't, because if you believe that you can't, then you will fall into, the, that you can't resist, then you won't resist. Um, if you believe that you can, then you recognize that God has restored your agency and you're more inclined, more likely to step into that freedom that's been made, made available. It, it is, and specifically Israelites. It is specifically a description of Israel's life under the law. Although, I think I can take it to another nerd level um, to, for you. I think, so Paul's talking about life under the law, but the way he's describing the the Israelite experience under the law before Jesus parallels the way Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle talked about their, the struggle to become a good person. So he's very aware that everybody in the room is going to hear him describing their culture, trying to be good, but unable to do so. And just to clarify two things, really. One is it's okay if we disagree on this, you know, uh, first off. You're wrong, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, there are disagreements, and it's okay. I, the other thing is, this is why I tried to emphasize at the beginning, right? Like, um, this does describe so much of our human experience. And so what I'm not trying to take away is that, because that's okay to struggle with sin. What I'm trying to say, I think what Michael and I would both say is just in terms of what Paul's saying in his argument in particular, he's not necessarily addressing our hum the human experience as a believer. He's specifically addressing the law and how those things and 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 how that can both be a good thing, but also something that we needed to get out from underneath of um, because of its its authority on our life and it's ultimately point uh, uh, pointing us toward 
the sentence of death. Um, and so, again, it, it is okay to see this and say, man, that sounds like me. I, again, like, I think at some level, like, that's a, that's a good thing to understand how Paul's saying, like, this is, this is how we experience this sometimes. I think just to be precise um, is that Paul's argument here is not necessarily talking about that, even though I think in a secondary way it, it does, if <laughs> that makes sense. Great. So, so I think Elijah and I both would like to give you very brief final thoughts on like a broad understanding of, of the law's role and like what will we back up uh, well, all of what Paul is saying. Like, so what is the law for? Like, what does it do? And I'm going to give you one way of thinking about it. It's an acronym. The law is God's rep as in representative. So the law reveals, I'm not going to write the whole thing. Uh, I'll say reveals God. So the law reveals God's character and will. The law is holy, righteous, and good because it's revelation of a holy, righteous, and good law, okay? The law exposes um, my sin. So I'll say us, but I'll say me so you know I'm taking it personally. It exposes the depth of my need for God. It does not solve the problem. It can point me toward the solution, but it cannot get me there. But it does expose just how bad I am and in this way, the law points us to Jesus, the only solution to the problem, or God through Christ and the Spirit. So in that sense, the law reps God by revealing his character and will, by exposing the depth of my sinfulness, and by pointing me toward the Savior. The analogy that I always use for this, so I'm sure you've heard it before, is, um, is I have this pair of shoes that... Um, just you need to know, like, I wish I cared more about fashion, but I just You're looking don't. good, man. And so I just wear what my wife Thanks, Maisie. Well, thank my wife. You know what I mean? Um, but here's what happens is I end up getting a pair of shoes and I'll just wear those shoes every day. You know, like, I'll just, I'll wear them over and over. Like, I'm, I don't, like, pick shoes for the day, you know, or the outfit. You know what I mean? Like, I just wear, so sometimes, sometimes it looks strange. You know what I mean? But ultimately, I'll just wear those things out, you know? And so, anyways, I had this black pair of Vans that I did this with for a while. I just wore them and wore them and wore them. And I didn't think anything of it. Um, and I don't know how long I had worn them for, but I remember sitting in my office and Chip... Um, you know, worship leader, big lanky chip came in and he sat down um, in my office and we were chatting and he put his leg up on his, you know, on his knee, you know, as people do. And I saw his shoes. and I was like, those are the same shoes that I, that I have, but they are immaculate. You know, I'm like looking at his shoes and I'm like, oh my gosh, like they, like the, 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 they're not scuffed. There's no dirt on them. You know, the laces aren't frayed. Like those look like brand new pair of shoes. And I look at my shoes. I'm like, it's time to get a new pair of shoes because these look like I've been doing yard work in these things. You know what I mean? And that to me is kind of what the law does. Like you didn't even know that you had become these scuffed up old, worn, faded pair of shoes until the law comes in. And you're like, man, that is everything that I was supposed to be. Like, that's what I'm being called to. And that's what we're talking about. It reveals God because in the sense that it represents the characters of goodness and holiness. Like, it represents the ideal of what is, is true. And then at the, it exposes us because we're like, well, mine aren't very good. Mine are pretty jacked up and, and tattered and torn. And then it points us to the solution as well. Now, I don't have a good analogy for how that pointed me to the solution. I guess in terms of like, said, Macy, like, I need new Macy, shoes. help me you know? pick out some shoes. So how am I going to get Jesus in this analogy. Yeah, yes. yeah. exactly. <laughs>
And so that's what happens is Jesus comes. That's where it becomes so meaningful when he says in Matthew 5, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. I came because this was everything it was pointing to was, was me. I was going to be the thing that saved you from sin and death and saved you from the, the, the brutal requirements that you had failed to overcome. I'm going to take the penalty. I'm going to give you life through me when you're united with me in a new covenant. And that's how, um, that's how I'm going to give you a new pair of shoes so that people don't judge you when you walk through places of notoriety and nobility and all those things. So anyways, that's what the law does. That's what the law does. And it really, it, it shows our problems, but it also points us to our solution. And that's Jesus. So I want to pray for you guys. And if you have more questions, please drop them off. Would love to uh, get those from you. So uh, let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful that you invite us into a life with you, God. And we're so grateful that, um, God, that we can just really just uh, learn that we don't have to be enslaved to sin. But recognize, God, that we need your strength if we're going to overcome it. Because the truth is, God, uh, man, we all do struggle. That this passage really is a, a mirror into our own souls so many times. And God, the truth is, what we need is your spirit to overcome every part of what we fail to do on our own. And we trust that it will. We trust that it will because the truth is we don't earn anything by being perfect. Um, instead, God, you... you grace us with a presence that overpowers the darkness. And Father, we recognize that at times uh, it just takes so much longer than we would like. And yet, Father, it produces in us a dependence that we need. And so, Father, I pray that every single one of us in this room tonight would become a little more dependent on you and our weaknesses, that we'd be a little bit more willing to share and open up about those things, and that we'd... Uh, that we'd be able to celebrate and praise you uh, and boast of you um, when you overcome those things in our life. God, we love you. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to this class. We hope it helps you find completeness in Jesus. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.